I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, stay. What's your name? Andrew Naiman, sir. What year are you? I'm a uh, first year. You know who I am? Yes, sir. So you know I'm looking for players? Yes, sir. Then why did you stop playing? Did I ask you to start playing again? Uh, sorry, I asked I why you stopped playing, and your version of an answer was to turn into a wind-up monkey. Sorry, I thought... Show me your rudiments. Yes, sir. Double-time swing. No, double-time. Double it. Faster. Faster! Daisy, forgot my jacket. Well, hey, everybody, welcome to Hope. That's the opening scene of a movie called Whiplash. It was nominated for Best Picture a couple of years ago when it came out. Miles Teller plays a 19-year-old named Andrew. He's a drummer at a prestigious music school in New York City. And J.K. Simmons, we are farmers, da, 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 the farmer's insurance guy, uh, plays Fletcher, um, Terrence Fletcher. He's the conductor of the top jazz ensemble at that school. He actually wins the actor uh, Oscar for Best Supporting Actor for his portrayal of this over-the-top driven teacher with an abusive leadership style. It's a movie that's really kind of hard to watch, and one of the reasons it's hard to watch is it so pointedly speaks to the reality of our culture. Uh, our culture where so many people are seeking value through accomplishment, achievement, and success. I am looking for players, Fletcher says to Andrew. I'm looking for people who can add value to my band. I'm not so much interested in giving value to you. I want you to give value to me. And you can see even in that opening clip that Andrew is desperate to be viewed as valuable enough to make the cut. And he's devastated when he thinks he's missed his opportunity. What about you? Where are you seeking your value these days? What is it that gives your life value? Jesus, of course, has a lot to say about the value of a life. If you have your Bibles, open them up to uh, Matthew chapter 12, and we're just going to make our way through the beginning verses of this chapter. I'll start in verse 1. At about that time, Jesus was walking through some grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, so they began breaking off some heads of grain and eating them. But some Pharisees saw them do it and protested, look. Your disciples are breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath. Jesus said to them, haven't you read the scriptures, what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He went into the house of God, and he and his companions broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests are allowed to eat. 
And haven't you read in the law of Moses that the priests on duty in the temple may work on the Sabbath? I tell you, there is one here who's even greater than the temple, but you would not have condemned my innocent disciples if you knew the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices, for the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. So part of what Jesus is getting at in this story is, yes, the law matters, but people matter more. People have more value than the law, especially a hungry human being, more valuable than keeping the law. I I get emails sometimes because I'm a a pastor at a church like Hope, and and people are wanting to know, hey, where is Hope's stance? What, What does Hope teach on this particular verse or issue or doctrine? And the way I've learned to kind of respond to these inquiries is I just email back, say, hey, thanks for the email. I would love to talk to you about hope. When can we get together for a face-to-face conversation? And I usually never hear back. (laughs) And, And part of what that teaches me is I think all of us, I've got it too, all of us have this Pharisee kind of complex where we have this temptation to place so much value on one particular verse or idea or doctrine, so much value on, isn't this the way church is supposed to be? So much value on, isn't this the style we're supposed to have for church? We place so much value on those one particular things, and in the process, we end up devaluing human beings. I want you to show mercy, Jesus says. I want you to show mercy. It's like he's saying, You know, I I just don't understand how you can't see this. People have more value than strict adherence to the law. People have more value than your religious displays. And Jesus drives this point home as we continue through Matthew chapter 12. Here's verse 9. Jesus went over to their synagogue where he noticed a man with a deformed hand. The Pharisees asked Jesus, does the law permit a person to work by healing on the Sabbath? They were hoping he would say yes so they could bring charges against him. And Jesus answered, if you had a sheep that fell into a well on the Sabbath, wouldn't you work to pull it out? Of course you would. And how much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Yes, the law permits a person to do good on the Sabbath. And he said to the man, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand and it was restored just like the other one. And then notice how this part of chapter 12 ends. Here's verse 14. Then the Pharisees called a meeting to plot how to kill Jesus. Their response to his merciful move is to get together and say, how are we going to kill this guy? How do they get to that kind of place? Well, part of it is their values are out of whack. They think what gives a life value is how well do you obey the law? And and the better you are at following the law, the more value you have, the more disobedient you are, the worse you are at following the law, the less value you have. Jesus seems to be saying something completely different. You have value simply because you are, because you exist, because you have blood flowing through your veins and a heart beating inside your chest. You have value. Now, There were some things in Jesus' day, in the economy of Jesus' day, that didn't have a whole lot of value. Sparrows were such a thing. A a sparrow, two sparrows would be sold for one copper coin, not very much value at all. And yet Jesus says, God's eye is on the sparrow. Not a single sparrow can fall to the ground without God knowing, without God caring. 
And Jesus is saying this in Matthew chapter 10 in the context of sending out his disciples in mission with this message of mercy. And the disciples are a little bit scared about what are they going to face as they go out with this message. Because they've seen when Jesus carries out this message, sometimes it doesn't go well. Sometimes people want to kill him. So they're scared. And here's what Jesus says to them. In fact, let's read this together. Matthew 10, 31. Read it out loud with me. So don't be afraid. You are more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. All kinds of things in this world that can fill us with fear. There's plenty to be scared of. And part of the wisdom of Jesus is you don't have to be afraid. Why? You are valuable to God. You're valuable to God. And this idea of value, it starts at the very beginning of Matthew. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, Jesus is talking to this great crowd of people that, that have gathered on a hillside in Galilee, and Jesus is looking at them, and he can just see in their faces how worried they are. Day after day after day, so worried about so many different things. What am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? What am I going to wear? What if I don't have enough? Who's going to take care of me? And you remember what Jesus says to that group of people? Look at the birds of the air. They don't plant, they don't harvest, they don't store away in barns. Why? Their heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you more valuable to him than they are? Back to the question we started with today. What makes your life valuable? Is it who you sit by in the lunchroom? Is it your relationship status? Who asked you to go to homecoming with them? Is it the car you drive, the neighborhood you live in, how much money you have in your bank account? Parents, what makes your life valuable? I don't think any of us would ever say this, but some of us are not so good at hiding it. The reality is we are actually convinced what gives my life value is the accomplishment of my kids. Your kid's on the team, that's nice. Mine's a starter. Mine's first chair. Mine's on the dean's list or the honor roll. Mine just got a promotion. What makes your life valuable? Where do you derive value in life? This movie, Whiplash, at one point later on in the movie, Andrew goes home, family dinner. It's at his father's house, and his aunt and uncle are there, and his cousins are there. And as you listen to the conversation around this dinner table, see if you can pick up on what this family believes gives a life value. Take a look. Jimbo, overcooked. <laughs> Barely true this. <laughs> he just laughed. So how's the drumming going, Andy? Uh, yeah, it's going uh, really well. I'm, I'm the new core drummer. Yeah. So. Yeah. Tom Brady! Did you hear it yet? No, what happened? Drive got named this year's MVP. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic, <laughs> Travis. Dustin is heading up Model UN, uh, soon to be Road Scholar, and who knows what all else. Uh, and Jim, Teacher of the Year. Well, hey, I mean, it. come on, the talent at this table, that is stunning. And Andy, with your drumming. It's going okay, Andy? Yeah, I mean, it's going really, really well, actually. I'm, um, I'm part of Schaefer's Top Jazz Orchestra, which means um, it's the best in the country. And... I'm a core member, so I'll start playing in competitions, and actually, I just, I, I found out I'm the youngest person in the entire band. Well, how, do you, how do you know when's in a music competition? Isn't it subjective? No. Does the studio get you a job? 
No, it's not an actual studio. It's just the name of the ensemble. But yeah, it's a big step forward in my career. Well, I'm so glad you figured it out. It's a nasty business, I am sure. Oh, hey, are you going to tell them about your game this week? Huh? Yeah. Living up to your title. Oh, what up? I scored a 93 year at touchdown. School record, school record, school record. Is that true? That's fantastic. Yeah, it's Division Three. Carlton football, it's not Division Two, it's Division Three. Got any friends, Andy? No. Well, why is that? I don't know. I just never really saw the use. Oh, who are you going to play with otherwise? Lennon and McCartney, they were a school buddies. Am I right? Charlie Parker didn't know anybody until Joe Jones threw a symbol at his head. So that's your idea of success, huh? I think being the greatest musician of the 20th century is anybody's idea of success. Dying broke and drunk and full of heroin at the age of 34 is not exactly my idea of success. I'd rather die drunk, broke at 34 and have people at a dinner table talk about me than live to be rich and sober at 90 and nobody remember who I was. Ah, but your friends will remember you. Well, that's the point. None of us were friends with Charlie Parker. That's the point. Travis and Dustin, they have plenty of friends and plenty of purpose. I'm sure they'll make great school board presidents someday. Oh, that's what this is all about? You think you're better than us? Catch on quick, are you gonna model you in? I got a reply for you, Andrew. You think Carlton football's a joke? Come play with us. Four words you will never hear from the NFL. <laughs> Wow. What gives your life value? I think it's pretty obvious what it is for that family. Uh, but what does that have to do with the book of Jonah? Jonah is this book in the Old Testament that we're making our way through this month of September. Uh, just a quick recap of what we've talked about so far. Week one, it's God giving a message to Jonah. I want you to go to Nineveh. And Jonah does exactly the opposite exactly the opposite of what God wants him to do. That's an important phrase. Last week, Jonah's in the belly of the fish, and in that place, not knowing is he going to live or die, he decides to praise God. And it's a powerful reminder to all of us, no matter what circumstances we might be facing or going through, it's always the right time to worship. It's always the right time to be filled with thanksgiving and gratitude to God for just this gift of life. Today we get to chapter three, the fish vomits Jonah out onto dry land, hopefully he takes a shower, and then he goes to Nineveh where he proclaims the message God has given him to deliver. It is a message of judgment. In 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. Why? Why the judgment? Well, it's because the people of Nineveh have been doing the same thing that Jonah was doing in chapter 1. They've been doing the opposite of what God wants them to do. Jonah delivers uh, the message, and the people receive it. The people actually believe it, including the king. And the king gathers the people together, and he says, here's what we need to do over the course of the next 40 days before this time of judgment comes. We need to repent, and we need to beg God to forgive us. And he's got all kinds of instructions for, here's what we're going to do over the next 40 days. It kind of gets summed up in the middle of verse 8. Here's Jonah chapter 3, verse 8. The king says, People and animals alike must wear garments of mourning, and everyone must pray earnestly to God. They must turn from their evil ways and stop all their violence. Now remember, Jesus says a person has value simply because they are. But this is a real difficult message for us to believe. And so a lot of us spend a great deal of time in our lives seeking out value, trying to prove that somehow we are valuable. You think about that scene around the dinner table. What, what did they think 
gives a person, gives a life value. Every single one around that table is trying to prove just how valuable they actually are. I'm the drummer in the top jazz orchestra in the country, Andrew says. And his father, he's not just a teacher, he wins teacher of the year. And his cousins are doing great at their Division three school. And the aunt says, the talent around this table, it's just stunning. But as the scene unfolds, it also becomes pretty clear they aren't actually able to to see, to recognize, to appreciate one another's value. Instead, it's a competition. Who's more valuable? Who's better? And I'm doing everything I can to prove that I'm better than the person sitting across the table from me. And I don't think any of us in the room would be surprised if that scene kept on going and it ended up in somebody fighting. What's the king of Nineveh say? Everyone must pray earnestly to God. They must turn from their evil ways and stop all their violence. This is what happens when we cannot just receive and believe our inherent God-given value. And instead, we go searching for value outside of our relationship with God. Sometimes people, when they don't believe they have value, they might think, you know what would give me value if I just got better? And it, it could end up becoming this, on the extreme level, it could become this pursuit of perfection. If I can just perform perfectly, that would maybe mean I'm actually valuable. And anyone or anything that gets in the way of my perfecting my life or my job or my relationship, we're just going to get rid of them. Sometimes people think, I don't know that I have any value. I don't, I'm not sure I feel lovable. And so what they end up doing is, I know I'll just start helping as many people as I possibly can because maybe there will be someone who will say to me, thank you so much for your help. I need you. Because if I'm needed by someone, doesn't that mean I have value? The problem is if you're just helping everybody around you, you, you might get to this place of resentment. Like, I'm doing all this for you. What, what, what? Nobody's helping me. And you can get angry and bitter, and it can lead to a place of evil ways and violence. A lot of people in this world just never quite feel safe. Everything's just threatening to them. And, and because they don't have this sense of value, Jesus says, you don't have to be afraid. You're valuable to God. A lot of people have a hard time believing that. And, and threats cause them to think, maybe I don't have any value at all. So what I really want is to latch on to some authority figure who will promise me safety and security. And it doesn't matter if that means they're going to mistreat some other people as long as they're keeping me safe. Everyone must pray earnestly to God. They must turn from their evil ways and stop all their violence. Now I'm guessing most of us in this room don't view ourselves as particularly violent people. That's for people like the Assyrians, the, the people of Nineveh. There, there are people that need to turn from their violence. That's not me. It is you, and it is me. And I want to approach it from a different angle to just kind of prove it to you. Later on in this film, everything is going great for Andrew. Number one drummer in the number one jazz orchestra. He meets a young woman named Nicole. They go on a couple of dates, and that's going great. Everything's going the way he wants it to be going. And then suddenly one day, everything changes. He shows up for rehearsal, and Fletcher, the conductor, says, hey, I want to give another drummer a shot. And he says, yeah, I like this drummer better. You're now on the sidelines. You're number two. And it's devastating to Andrew. He doesn't know what to do. He, he feels lost. And I think it would be very accurate to say he feels like his life has lost its value. 
Fletcher says to him, if you want the part back, you're going to have to earn it. And so Andrew's like, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And the decision he makes is, I just got to remove anything that is a distraction. And it leads to this conversation with Nicole. Take a look. This is why I don't think that we should be together. And I've thought about it a lot, and this is what's going to happen. Okay, I'm going to keep pursuing what I'm pursuing. And because I'm doing that, it's going to take up more and more of my time, and I'm not going to be able to spend as much time with you. And even when I do spend time with you, I'm going to be thinking about drumming. I'm going to be thinking about jazz music and my charts and all that, and because of that, you're going to start to resent me. And you're going to tell me to ease up on the drumming, spend more time with you because you're not feeling important. And I'm not going to be able to do that. And really, I'm just going to start to resent you for even asking me to stop drumming. And we're just going to start to hate each other. And it's going to get very, it's going to be ugly. And so for those reasons, I'd rather just, you know, break it off clean. Because I want to be great. And you're not. I want to be one of the greats. And I would stop you from doing that. You know I would stop you from doing that. You know that for a fact. Yes. And I'd barely see you anyway. And you have a path, and you're going to be great, and I'm going to be forgotten, and therefore you won't be able to give me the time of day because you have bigger things to pursue. That's exactly you're my right. point. We should not be The movie's called Whiplash for a couple of reasons. One of the jazz pieces that they rehearse and play in competitions is called Whiplash, but it's also called Whiplash because there's so much stopping and turning and sudden changes of direction, and people end up getting hurt in the midst of that, right? That's what, if you're driving in a car really fast and you have to slam on the brakes or you run into some kind of obstacle, you, sudden stop or turn, change of direction, it can cause this injury of whiplash, but there's relational whiplash as well, right? Andrew experiences it when Fletcher says to him, you're no longer the top drummer, and in that scene, I think Nicole is experiencing some relational whiplash. I think there's also a spiritual whiplash. Our word violence, the English word, comes from the Latin root word violare, which means to force, to injure, to dishonor, to violate. When we're unable to accept our God-given inherent value and we're not going God's way, we're looking for value outside of that relationship with God, it ends up leading to places where we're not honoring God's way, we're violating God's way, and people end up getting hurt. We end up getting hurt. And ultimately, this is supposed to lead to a place of repentance. That's what happens with uh, the people of Nineveh. The king says, hey, we, we've received this message, we believe this message, and we are going to start praying, we're going to start fasting, we're going to start doing everything we can over the course of the next 40 days to show God how sorry we are, to show our sorrow. 
And in the biblical context, whenever I hear the word sorrow, I always think of 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. It's on the screen. Read it out loud with me. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. So what's the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow? Our son, Shaden, is in seventh grade, uh, plays football for Des Moines Christian School. His first game was Thursday, and so we're driving down there to watch, and it's my wife and me and our eight-year-old daughter, Saffron, and we get to the bleachers, and as we're trying to find our seat, Saffron picks up a, a pamphlet. It ends up being a gospel tract. You know what a gospel tract is? This pamphlet where people are like, here are the seven steps or the ten steps for a sinner to be saved. And on, on the cover of this gospel tract in bold print, it asks this question, are you good enough to go to heaven? And so Saffron reads it and she holds it up and shows us and she says, we better keep this, right? Because we want to make sure we're good enough to get to heaven. <laughs> What's the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow? It actually has a whole lot to do with our understanding of goodness. Let's put a spectrum up on the screen. This is the sorrow spectrum, we'll call it. And on either end of the spectrum is worldly sorrow. When we're not going God's way, when we're going our own way, and, and we're not able to accept the value, the inherent God-given value that we have, and instead we're looking for value in other places, it leads to sinful behavior. It leads to lying, cheating, a stealing, it, it leads to violent activity against one another, it leads to using people rather than loving people, and gossip, and unkindness, and neglect, and, and all these things that we would call sin. And when we're not going God's way, God is at work trying to get our attention, trying to get us to change direction and return to his path, return to God's way. But the problem is, we talked about it in the first week of this series, we read that children's book, Runaway Bunny, so many of us spend so much time in our lives running away from God's way. God's trying to get our attention, and we're doing everything we can not to pay attention. But at some point in each of our lives, God's going to get our attention, and God's going to help us see just how destructive it is when we choose not to go God's way, how, how destructive it is to us when we look for value outside our relationship with God. And when that moment hits us and that realization hits us, it fills us with sorrow. It can be worldly sorrow or godly sorrow. If it's worldly sorrow, there's a couple of different ways this plays out. It could fill us with shame. We come to this recognition that I'm, I'm just not perfect. I'm just not good. And in fact, maybe I think I'm so bad that it's just this woe is me, less than kind of thing. And I'm so bad, I, I'm just going to keep pursuing even worse and worse options all the time. And it's this downward cycle and spiral, and it pushes me farther and farther away from God. On the other end of the spectrum is spiritual pride. And, and when we come to this realization that we're not good enough, that we have messed up, that we have hurt people, that we're not going God's way, when spiritual pride kicks in, it says, come on, God, just give me one more chance. I know I've got what it takes. Just give me one more chance. I can get it right. To, give, let me try again. Give me one more chance. I can do it. Whether it's the worldly sorrow of shame or the worldly sorrow of pride, both ends of that spectrum are a way to reject grace. Shameful spiritual pride says, I'm so bad, grace cannot possibly reach me. Prideful worldly sorrow says, yeah, grace, that sounds nice and all, but what I really want is just one more, I can do it, just give me one more chance, Lord. So God is calling us back to the center over and over again. 
in the center of this spectrum of sorrow is godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is the sweet spot of grace. And this is where the people of Nineveh find themselves. They don't end up in this hopeless place. They don't end up in this place where they're like, hey, what do we need to do to to make it better? They end up in this place where they realize our only hope is that God would show mercy, that God would extend grace. Part of what's fascinating to me about the Jonah story, and we'll talk about it more next week, the worldly Ninevites, the people who are outside of the kingdom of God, not part of the nation of Israel, they're heathens, they're pagans, but they're the ones who express godly sorrow. And the prophet of God, Jonah, is expressing worldly sorrow, and it's leading to death. God forgives the people of Nineveh. God doesn't bring about the uh, destruction that God threatened, and it makes Jonah mad. Kill me now, Lord, he says. I'd rather be dead than alive if the message that I prophesied doesn't come true. Because he wants to be a great prophet, and great prophets are the ones who bring the message and it actually happens. Here's God trying to ruin it for Jonah. Over and over in this book of Jonah, what we see the prophet doing is running away from grace. And he's not even sorry. One more clip from this movie. Uh, both Andrew and Fletcher are passionately pursuing greatness as well. And, and let me just be clear, there's nothing wrong with pursuing greatness. It's just that our pursuit of greatness is often counter to what Jesus says greatness looks like. Greatness looks like humility, humbling yourself, serving others according to Jesus, lifting others up. But our pursuit of greatness is often pushing others down. And so Andrew and Fletcher are pursuing greatness, and it actually leads to violence in the film. They get into a fight on stage at a jazz competition. They get kicked out of the school, and a couple of months later, Andrew's walking down a street, goes past a jazz club. He sees on the moniker, it says that Fletcher is inside playing with a jazz band, so he goes in, they make eye contact, and it leads to this conversation. Take a look. I don't know if you heard... uh... I'm not at Schaefer anymore. Yeah, I, I, I did hear that. Did you quit? Not exactly. Some parents got a kid from Sean Casey's here, I think, to say some things about me. Although why anybody would have anything other than peaches and cream to say about me is a mystery. Uh, <laughs> That's a good laugh, right? I'm sorry. No, listen, no, hey, I'm sorry. I get it. I know I made enemies. I'm conducting a little, though. They brought back the JVC Fest this year. They got me opening in a couple of weeks with a pro band. That's great. Yeah, it's all right. Truth is, I don't think people understood what it was I was doing at Schaefer. I wasn't there to conduct. I was there to push people beyond what's expected of them. I believe that is an absolute necessity. Otherwise, we're depriving the world of the next Louis Armstrong, the next Charlie Parker. 
I told you that story about how Charlie Parker became Charlie Parker, right? Yeah. Joe Jones threw a symbol at his head. Exactly. And he's laughed off stage. Cries himself to sleep that night. But the next morning, what does he do? He practices. And he practices and he practices with one goal in mind, never to be laughed at again. So imagine if Jones had just said, well, that's okay, Charlie. I, that was all right. Good job. End of story. No bird. That, to me, is an absolute tragedy. But that's just what the world wants now. People wonder why jazz is dying. I'll tell you, man. Every Starbucks jazz album just proves my point, really. There are no two words in the English language more harmful than good job. But is there a line? You know, maybe you go too far and you discourage the next Charlie Parker from ever becoming Charlie Parker? because the next Charlie Parker would never be discouraged. Yeah. The truth is, Andrew, I never really had a Charlie Parker. But I tried, and that's more than most people ever do. And I will never apologize for how I tried. Would you stand with me, please? And hats off to Jared Wells, our production coordinator, for editing out all the words that needed to be edited out of those <laughs> scenes. It's a godly sorrow that leads to death, destruction. It's a worldly sorrow that leads to life. And the song we're about to sing says, bring your sorrow, bring your shame, bring your regrets, and allow the grace of God to trade that sorrow for joy. So I hope that, I mean, maybe you're like, I'm sorry I came to church today. This was depressing. Uh, the idea is God wants to trade in our sorrow for joy. Let's sing about that right now. 